Hagen's ensign peak. Um, when they get to the valley, he looks up to the north, and there it is, and and he is now it's now confirmed to him this is the place, <laughs> literally. And and uh, so a couple of days after they have gotten a little bit settled, he and some of the brethren uh, then climb up to the top of Ensign Peak, where the, and this is the view that they were looking uh, down on. Uh, and of course, they could see the temple and they could see the condos and all that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, th th think about think about what they were seeing, and they did plant a flag, so this was an ensign. So this was part of where we get the the from the ensign magazine. Um, so from up on top, they'll picture what Brigham was seeing as he looked down into the valley, and it's like here's this desolate valley and this little group of wagons, and they're doing a little bit of planting over here. They've tried to stop up the river, City Creek, and get it to flood. A little, they're trying to do some fast gardening because they know that there are hundreds of saints en route, and it's their job to get the place ready and, and start to, to do all that. But literally, he's looking at this small group of wagons down in the middle of a desolate valley, and they've got, for hundreds of miles, there's no other support. They've only got themselves. And I got thinking about that, and I've since thought about it. I thought about it up there, and I've since thought about the fact that, in, a, in essence, that's who we are as saints. You think about the struggles that we have, and if sometimes we'll put ourselves in a place of saying, we're kind of in the middle of a valley, we're, we're in the middle of Babylon, and what, what we have and who we have to rely on is each other. Within our wards and with our states, within our uh, ward communities, to draw on and help. This is where we solve each other's problems. Because outside there is Babylon. And we, didn't, we can't count on their help. In fact, sometimes we can count on Babylon to try and screw it up. Mm -hmm. So if we have who we have, then we rely on one another. So that, that, that's pretty comforting to me. So. Mm -hmm. There's a new pageant that's starting up in British Isles in the Preston Temple. No, there, really? Late July. New pageant in Preston, uh, really, and that starts in July. July thirty first, first week of August, second August. Wow. Okay. Since that was in my zone on my mission, that will give me a reason to have to go back to that pageant. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was my area. In England. Very good. Okay. Anything else? Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. That said, is it cool enough in here? Yeah. Do, do, do we need to kind of downshift on that? Okay. Could you go ahead? And... Okay. All right. Now, with that, with that, then, uh, again, we were talking about the fact that really, uh, when when the Lord revealed the doctrine of covenants, He gave it a He gave it bookend. Uh, revelations that would be on each side of the, this set of revelations. And I'll give it in 1831. Section 1 was to be the preface. Section 133 was to be the appendix. Now, out, and so it used to be that every time new revelations would come, or they print new versions, they would just move section 133 to the end because it was supposed to be the other version, or the other book. Well, with, we have a couple of uh, Revelations that ended up outside the bookends, and the church decided not to keep moving 133 because it would be confusing. 
so that's when we get uh, uh, 130, uh, 4 and 5 uh, on the, the martyrdom and some questions. And then we get 136, uh, the will of the Lord to the saints uh, crossing the plains. And then, and then I remember in uh, 1977, I was on my mission, uh, we... That we get two new revelations to the, the Doctrine and Covenants, section 137 and 138. And I believe that they are companion revelations. They, they speak to the same theme. So rather than divide them, I wanted to talk about both of them uh, today and kind of put them together. Okay? Uh, so, section 137. And let's go to that one for a sec here. Okay, I want you to notice the date. This is in, this is in 1836. This is right in the middle of the run-up to the building of the Kirtland Temple. And this was a particular vision that the prophet Joseph had uh, in relation to uh, getting ready for the temple. And he's going to learn some things that he did not know. And, and again, it gives you a sense that, that Joseph, uh, like the Savior... Learn things line by line, precept upon precept. He didn't know everything all at once. And, and the Lord slowly unfolded information to him. And you're about to see a really big one for him on this, okay? Uh, he says the heavens were open. The heavens were open. I beheld the celestial kingdom and the glory of the. In the body or out, I cannot tell. Uh, wow. I didn't know it could do that. But, um, he, by the way, and he's saying this, who's he echoing as he says this? Whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. No? Paul. 1 Corinthians 12. I knew a man that was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out, I cannot tell. It was him. Uh, and, he's, and he's having the same experience, and so he's probably seen what Paul saw. In fact, he would lay, in fact, he did see what Paul saw. At another point, he says, uh, I saw what Paul saw, and much more. Okay? Uh, the heavens were opened. I beheld the celestial kingdom, uh, the transcendent beauty of the gate. Uh, Three, the blazing throne of God, wherein was seated the Father and the Son. I saw the beautiful streets of the kingdom, the appearance being paved with gold. And then he sees, it's interesting that he's going to see five people. Okay, listen to this. I beheld Adam and Abraham and my father, mother, and Alvin. Okay, now, let's take these... Uh, I get, it's been interesting that he's seen Father Adam and Father Abraham. As an Israelite, these are the two for him. You know, I'm part of this. This is my progenitors. There they are. Adam, Abraham. Then he's going to see Father and Mother. Now, it's 1836. When did, when did his father die? 
Listen closely to what he says in verse 6. And he sees them and he does what? Marvels. He marvels that he's seen Alvin. Why? How it was that Alvin had obtained an inheritance in the kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Okay, now, you can now fill in the blank. What was it that up till this moment Joseph had believed about his beloved brother Alvin? He was lost. Isn't that amazing? That that belief and that understanding that there must have been times when the church is organized and they're seeing all of this, and Joseph must have been sitting there thinking, oh, Alvin just went along. Mm-hmm. He's missing out on all of this, and he's not going to be able to be heir to any of this because he died. Because he now knows baptism is critical to be able to get in, you've got to be baptized. Alvin was never baptized, therefore my, my brother whom I love won't make. He will be. Yeah, this is before that. In other words, 
He's, gonna, he's now going to get one piece of this without getting the other. This is, that's why I say it's going to be line upon line. He's about to be taught something that he did not know. Now, by the way, sisters, how many people do you talk to on a regular basis that still don't know this? You know, who are out there thinking, oh, you know, because my neighbor never accepted Christ and they died, therefore what? Damned. They're damned. Or, or uh, Catholics that last rites were never performed. What happened to babies that were never baptized? What do they believe? They're lost. And Joseph, as much as any other Christian group, understood that concept for years. And so you get this moment where he says, I see Alvin that had long slept and marveled. Marvel isn't just like pleasantly surprised. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when, if you ever had the experience with, with kids and you think that they're not listening to anything ever, And suddenly in the middle of a class or something, they suddenly spit out something, and you go, oh. <laughs> they got it. They knew it. And you're just like pleasantly surprised over the top. That's what marveled is. Marveled is there is more here than I ever would have dreamed. I'm just, I can't believe how great this is. And marveled. How it was that he had obtained an inheritance in the kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord set his hand. And thus, and now here comes the teaching. And thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, Joseph, let me tell you something. All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs to the celestial. Now, all Christians should hear this. There is not a more powerful, wonderful God. Okay, Jeff and I experienced this. When we got married, I was Catholic, he was Methodist. He was not good to become a Catholic. Yes. I'd love to become a Methodist. Well, Mormon is a good halfway. <laughs> <laughs> Just once we'll finally hear it and turn. 
And in, and in looking for that quote in the Google and Thumbum, the quotes that I heard online from people about saying, you rejected Christ, you are damned. You had your chance, you've lost it. If you don't accept Christ right now, you're toast. You know, and now, we would never do that in the church, right? We would never, I don't know, sister, do you ever have that experience? You know, where you go over and knock on somebody's door and they go, ah, oh, it's the Mormons, go away, we couldn't care, you know, go away. And you go, okay, let's go wash our feet on those guys. <laughs> do we ever think about that as members? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. I love to read and pray about the Savior. People, people do not know how many hours every day the Muslims kneel, kneel in prayer. Yeah. Kneel, reading about the Savior. Uh, the effort to convert the Muslims to explain what they were reading and what they were praying about all of those hours and hours and hours, it, it's a common bond. It works a lot better than other forms of, <laughs> yeah. you know, if there's talk about Christianity within a or waterboard, the Christianity I've found worked really yeah, well. It's in there. Daniel, Critis, da, uh, Daniel Peterson, uh, Islamic scholar at BYU, uh, has talked pretty... Uh, Eloquently about the fact that he believes that the, if you especially read the first part of the Quran, very inspired, and he believes that the the first part under Muhammad that there was an awful lot of uh, inspired things that were done, and that uh, for Islam that it went through a, an apostasy the same way that Christianity did. And So, so what's going to happen then? Think about, think about all of the people, whether they, are, whether they are practicing Muslims and are antagonistic against Christianity, or, or uh, think about Catholics or everybody else that are very, very good people. What's going to happen with these people, according to this, when they hear the Gospel? How many people do you meet in your daily walk that will be in the celestial kingdom because they simply, because of the traditions of the fathers or experiences or whatever, they're not hearing the gospel now. That's, that's a fabulous concept to me. You are meeting somebody, maybe checking you out at Tom Thumb, who's going to the celestial kingdom. They just don't know it yet because they've never had a chance to be taught. It is the law. And so you begin to get this sense that in this revelation, as well as this next one, 138, from Joseph F. Smith, the incredible mercy of the Lord. We cannot fathom how merciful this God is. And how quickly He is uh, to embrace us. Okay, in, in fact...
boarding the first group at 6 in the morning. He returned at 9 a.m., at 12 noon, and at 3 in the afternoon. Hiring more workers as the urgency of the harvest increased. The scripture says he came back a final time, about the 11th hour, approximately 5 p.m., and hired a concluding number then. Then just an hour later, all the workers gathered to receive their day's wage. Surprisingly, all received the same wage in spite of the different hours of labor. Immediately, those hired first were angry, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. The householder in the parable tells them, My friends, I'm not being unfair to you. You agreed on the wage for the day, a good wage. You were very happy to get the work, and I'm very happy with the way you served. You are paid in full. Take your pay and enjoy the blessing. As for the others, surely I am free to do what I like with my own money. Then this piercing question to anyone then or now who may need to hear it. Why should you be jealous? Because I choose to be kind. This parable, like all parables, is not really about laborers or wages any more than the others are about sheep and goats. This is a story about God's goodness, His patience and forgiveness, and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not know who in this vast audience today may need to hear the message of forgiveness inherent in this parable. But however late you think you are, however many chances you think you've missed, however many mistakes you feel you've made, or talents you think you don't have, or distance from home and family and God you feel you have traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. Whether you are not yet of our faith, or were once with us and have not remained, there is nothing in either case you have done that cannot be undone. There is no problem which you cannot overcome. There is no dream that in the unfolding of time and eternity cannot yet be realized. Even if you feel you are the lost and last laborer of the eleventh hour, the Lord of the vineyard still stands beckoning. Come boldly to the throne of grace and fall at the feet of the Holy One of Israel. Come and feast without money and without price at the table of the Lord. Do it for your sake. Do it for the sake of those who love you and are praying that you will respond. Do it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid an unfathomable price for the future 
want you to have. So if you've made covenants, keep them. If you haven't made them, make them. If you've made them and broken them, repent and repair them. It is never too late. So long as the master of the vineyard says there is time. Please listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit telling you right now, this very moment, that you should accept the atoning gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the fellowship of his labor. Don't delay. It's getting late. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If this God is this merciful to all of his children and will give them a thousand chances to repent, brothers and sisters, what will he do for his saints? Why do we have such a hard time accepting this one? What gets in the way of that? Why would we struggle? Why do we beat ourselves up about what we've done or haven't done so much to the fact that we're going to ignore the promptings from this loving God. Why do we do that? What would possess us to not... When, when, you, when you talk to somebody who is struggling with letting this kind of love in, what holds them back, you think? Sometimes it's pride. Pride. Why pride? It's pride. It's selfish. But if I'm selfish because I think I'm bad, right? uh, my actions or my imperfections put myself outside of... By the way, you're right. Why would pride put us outside of that? We can't be humble enough. <coughs> Although, doesn't it look like you're being really humble when you're saying, I'm really weak and I'm really stupid and I'm never perfect and my house is just awful and my kids are bad? Why would that be pride? Why would that not be humble? And you're right. To submit to what? Sure. And, and, and that's true of somebody who's like outwardly sinning. But isn't it interesting that we're still talking about pride and selfishness when we're talking about somebody, and, and ladies, Mother's Day is coming up. This is your chance to really get into this. Uh, that you look at your imperfections and you say, I, I can't do it. I'm not as good as, and you're beating it. Doesn't that look like humbleness? Doesn't that look like lack of selfishness? You're getting something out of it. You it what do you get up? And maybe I can't change? Yeah? I just think a lot of times, women especially, think, I have my standards. This is not what I'm supposed to be. Gods are lower than mine. Yeah? This is, this is what... I'm going to hold myself to a standard that's almost un un unreachable. Yeah. Same. 
Pride factor comes into the into the place sometimes when we say the atonement works for everybody else. I'm a special case. In my case, I'm too flawed. In my case, I'm too weak. In my case, and I get that other people have kids that stray, but in my case, they shouldn't have. You know, and you are you're getting kind of a a uniqueness. Yeah. Sometimes there is an identity. I'm completely lost and always will. Isn't that true? So, so when we look at things like this and I say to you, God is incredibly merciful and you're incredibly blessed and you have been given tender mercies more than you can count. And then you counter that with, well, then I shouldn't have done the things I did. Or I should be better. Or I should be unflawed. Or I should be, I should be, I should be. That pride begins to enter in, and I, identity is a good term. That somehow we're 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 now we're worse because we've been greatly blessed. Yeah, but the funny thing is, even in a very low self-esteem condition, there's a pride that enters in because now I believe I've put myself outside of God's mercy, and that's why I say it's a very subtle pride that enters in. That's why it's right. That it is a pride, and you would think, well, she's not prideful. She just hates herself. And I'll... No, that pride says, this merciful God can't reach me. Or that my sins are worse. Or that my imperfections are bad, even under the greater light. Wow, the twist we do on this. But it's, it's amazing. We as mortals, this is so busy. I stay full. Yes. More than any other religion. More stressed, put it on us because we believe we perfect. Yeah. We're talking. We don't look at ourselves in the mirror and say, God has told us that there's a way around everything we do. Okay. This is, uh, let, let, let me give you my favorite quote. Every now and then I, I read something that just leaps out at me and it's like, okay, here's my next thing. You guys are going to end up getting beat up with this in the next year, I promise. <laughs> and it actually comes from George MacDonald. Yeah, uh, again, we, we, I've said this before. George McDonald was C.S. Lewis's mentor. Uh, he was a, he was at the, his, in his time. He was the most famous preacher in all of England. He was a Scottish preacher, uh, and it was his words that inspired C.S. Lewis and turned him from atheism. Uh, and and he was then hired by a large church in New York uh, to come and fill their pulpit. Um, and and here here's what he said. You get a flavor of what he's saying, but, but particularly there's a couple of things here. Come to God then, my brother, my sister, with all thy desires and instincts, all thy lofty ideals, all thy longing for purity and, and unselfishness, all thy yearning to love and be true. Come to Him with all thy weaknesses, with all thy shames, all thy futilities, with all thy helplessness, over thine own thoughts. He's going to start hitting. Picture all of these things that are ascending to this merciful God. 
Okay? With all thy failure, yea, with the sick sense of having missed the tide of true affairs. The sick sense of believing that you missed a true affair. I'm not really catching it. Everybody else is getting something that I'm not getting. Everybody understands this and I don't. I'm missing out. Having missed out on true affairs. Come to Him with all thy doubts, fears, dishonesties, meanness, paltriness, misjudgments, weariness, disappointments, and staleness. And then this. This is my theme for the next year. You ready? Be sure He will take thee in all thy miserable brood, whether of draggle-winged angels or covert-seeking snakes, into His care. And not a nasty word in oh. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, how many of us are draggle-winged angels? How many of us are filled with it or covert-seeking snakes? They don't get along. In, no, inside of us, and that's why I put this picture here. How many of us are angels indeed, but we are draggle-winged angels? We, we want to help, but we just don't seem to do it right. And we get discouraged, and we're sitting there, and you picture this angel with wings, and the wings are just flopping down. And it's a draggle-winged angel. I was trying to do my best. I can never seem to get my living attention done. My kids are still fighting. We're draggling angels. And at the same, same time, we have covert-seeking snakes. I'm trying, you know, for a, a regular basis, I get a text from one of my little clients, and she'll say, Brother Hinkley, I messed up again. I'm so sorry. And it's just like uh, these 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 kind of struggling parts of us seem to keep running us astray. And he says, bring your draggle-winged angels and your covert snakes, covert-seeking snakes, to God because He wants them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when we're reading the scriptures and we, we see the Alamas and the Pauls and all those of the world, and we go, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> that there's no visions, and I'm just a dragon winged angel. Okay, I get that I'm an angel, I'm a child of God, but boy, am I missing And he says, Bring those. This is the ones. And think about all of those dragon winged angels that are going to get other opportunities to clearly hear the gospel 
in the spirit world and this time in that setting with that love, all of those misperceptions and traditions of the fathers are finally stripped away and the light of the gospel finally finds a place to be. There's finally a soil where the seed can be planted. And God says, I will give you time after time, just one. How many times, the Old Testament, we're going to study the Old Testament next year. We're going to hear over and over and over this, this wicked, hard-headed, stiff-necked um, group of Israelites and the Lord spends the entire Old Testament saying, turn around. Just once. Turn. You know, a child doesn't, or a mother doesn't forget her child. Turn. Come. I will take you in a heartbeat. Quit being stupid. <laughs> Come back. Yes. I picture, well, when I was picturing this, one thing that I, uh, that I was picturing was how many times do you believe that the father in the parable stood at the edge of his field looking out across the land to where his prodigal son was out there somewhere. Waiting. Waiting. And then when the word comes and you see this, this boy with his head down, beaten up by life, now he's truly humbled and he comes back Expecting to just be a servant. And his brother's okay with that. And his brother would be alright with that. I was I was in the I was in the vineyard from the first of the morning to the end, and he's coming in at the last moment. Yeah, he ought to start that too. You ought to hurt the things he said to dad. You ought to hurt how many times he made mom cry. You should have heard the mean things he said. You should have seen the things he did. You should have seen the attitude that he did, the times he messed up family prayer. When he wouldn't read his scripture because he was just being obnoxious in the corner. You should have said, yeah, if he wants to be gone, let him be gone. And I can't believe that dad is still out there mourning over him. Because it's much more quiet, it's much more peaceful with him gone. If he wants to take his inheritance and that dad worked his entire life for and burn it up in the city, let him do it. We're better off without him. Let him be gone. And dad is standing on the edge of the field waiting for his son. This is something I added, but I, they don't mention the mother. They don't and mention I think they because she was just so happy. Yeah, she's, she's there. She's there. But she would have, my guess is dad's, dad's busy, dad's running things. Who do you think bore most of the, the brunt of the prodigal son going off? And who was the happiest? And who would have been the happiest? Yeah. Might have had a sister. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and so think about, again, we, if we go back here, if you really, if you, if you see what Joseph is marveling over, he's really marveling over the fact that there is far more mercy and love available even for the prodigals, even for all of these people who, again, may still be heirs to the celestial kingdom. We can't begin to assume that we know where people are and what they have heard and what they haven't heard. And how many chances it might take for them to finally catch. That's why he's going to say, Thus came the voice of the, the Lord unto me, all who died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs. Eight, all who shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, and who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. Now, fascinating to me that Joseph won't reveal the uh, baptism for the dead doctrine until 1841. He's still five years away from that. So, in a sense, I don't know if he knew it at this time and didn't preach it, or you actually get a sense that he is now accepting in some way. I thought Alvin had to be baptized. In some way, he ends up in the celestial kingdom. God is saying he'll be in the celestial kingdom, but he wasn't baptized. Some way I have to trust that something is going to happen here that I don't yet understand. And then in 1841, it now is going to make sense because now we're going to get baptism by God. Yeah, so, yeah, see, I, I assume, yeah, she's a good point. She said, in section uh, 124, is, is, is it really one, uh, 1828? So it's coming. You just get this sense. So it's, it's an unrolling that at some point Joseph knew it. Out it comes. Now, the part, let me just mention one last thing in here. Because against this backdrop, here's what I don't know. And, and even as I, I went back and checked with some of the prophets, there's an element of here that is, is a bit foggy. And it was never clarified in Joseph's lifetime. And I wish we had time to spend more on verse 9. Because that, there's a whole lesson there. 10. And I also beheld that all children who die before they arrive in the years of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom. Okay? That one is foggy a bit to me. Because, because we've just gone through the whole process of saying those who would have accepted, had they been permitted to tarry, will be accepted in the celestial kingdom. I, I guess there's a part of me that wonders how many kids had they grown to adulthood, wouldn't have accepted. And then they're going to get into the celestial kingdom where they wouldn't be comfortable. So I, I guess I, I kind of put the caveat on there. After they arrive at the years of accountability or saved in the celestial kingdom, had they been permitted to tarry? And, and I won. And, and the brethren that I've read says, we're not completely sure. Don't assume you know the full import of what exactly this means. Uh, don't automatically assume that every child, I guess, that would have grown up with kind of a wickedness and stuff like that, is they going to be put into the celestial kingdom. Remember, it would the the most you could create hell in a child 
by putting them in a place where they don't want to be. You can create hell for an adult by putting them in the presence of God when they aren't prepared to be there. That would be, heaven, heaven could be hell for someone like that. I would, I would think that every child, every, every child I think that's born into the world, that its birthright would be the special Sure. So that, you know, as they, and, and then they have the opportunity at the death, if they die as infants, to, to learn, to accept, to not accept their birthright. Yeah. So those that die before the account, before the age of accountability, I would think that's still their birthright. So they are heirs to the kingdom, should they accept it. Yeah. 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 I, I could go with that one. Okay. That said then, we have a half hour left. Okay. Let's go now to section 138. And again, I, I think there was some, some wisdom when uh, President Kimball and the Brethren added these two revelations side by side because I think they're kind of a continuation uh, of the same thing. Um, section 138. Uh, let, let me just recap something that I've talked about before. Uh, and it's conjunction with uh, Joseph F. Smith. Um, oh, by the way, did learn something over the weekend uh, that I thought was kind of fascinating. Um, Cindy and I went into a Deseret Book in Salt Lake. Uh, we went, went in, in Salt Lake. We're going to go check things out and everything. Uh, and uh, I've always loved this sculpture uh, that sits right in front of the Nauvoo temple. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the times that I was in Nauvoo and I brought one of my boys up there, uh, this sculpture had just, uh, within weeks, had just been put there. And, and the, uh, imagine that they, they did the sculpture of uh, this magnificent thing. They put it on a flatbed and they drove it from Utah to Illinois. And when they got to the, there's a turnoff. If you think, if you've been to there, you, you come through Keokuk, if you're coming that direction, and you come over the Mississippi, and there's a turnoff. There's a, you can either go to Warsaw here, you can go straight ahead to Carthage, or you make a left-hand turn, and you go along the river road that winds up to Nauvoo. Okay? When the flatbed came over that bridge and got to that intersection, they kept going. They went straight to Carthage and parked this sculpture in front of the Carthage jail because the sculptor said they would want to be there. Before we put it in Nauvoo, they would want to be in Carthage. So they left it in Carthage for about, for several days. They're just sitting there because they thought that they were on their way to Carthage. This shows them on their way to Carthage. They should at least get to be to, to Carthage and finish that journey. Then they turned the flatbed around, went back down the road up there, and then the sculpture was placed then in front of the temple. Okay. Now uh, there are there are there was a handful of miniatures made of this sculpture, of, the, of this sculpture. 
some very large ones that were given to those that had donated an incredible amount of money to the building of the Nauvoo Temple, which was done completely with private funds. No church funds were used to build the Nauvoo Temple. It was all done privately. One of the thank yous from the church was one-eighth um, scale sculptures of this sculpture. Because there was just going to be a limited amount. They wanted it to be limited. Because there were people that wanted to, there were a number of people that gave over a million dollars to the building of that thing. And they, they, they came to the church and said, we'd like to do this, and the church said, fine. And suddenly the money poured in and the church funds were needed. Uh, now, the smaller versions, of which there's only like three left of this sculpture, uh, 116th version of it, that there's one still sitting in Deseret Book, and we're talking to the lady in Deseret Book, and she said that the other day, uh, uh, Sister Dew came in with Elder Ballard, and there was a lady thinking about buying one of these sculptures, and, and Elder Ballard came over, knew her, recognized her, visited with her, and then he said, let me tell you about this sculpture, why it's done the way that it's done. He says, and, and he is a great, great, great grandson of Hiram. Okay. Uh, he said, it, the family knows, the family understands that this exact spot in front of the Nauvoo Temple is where these brethren stopped on horseback the second time. Remember, they, they went out to Carthage, came back to kind of take the guns back from the Nauvoo Legion, and then started the second time. It was the last time. They're on their way up. They stop at this point. There's a reason why. Hiram is turning in his, in, in, on, on the horseback. The reason why, um, according to Albert Ballard, is that Joseph F. Smith, as a five-year-old boy, was standing there. Hiram turned, saw him one last time, climbed off the horse, gave him a hug, got back on the horse, and left. But that's the spot, apparently, where he did it. So when they were going to put the sculpture, they wanted it to be in that spot where Hiram turned and saw Joseph there for the last time. Okay? On that spot. Now, so, I think it's fascinating then that one of these then these new revelations that we received in, in 1976 was by Joseph F. Smith. A more tender-hearted man has never walked this earth. Especially in his last... He had been beaten up severely during the, the uh, Reed Smoot hearings on polygamy in, in, in front of the Senate. Uh, and he just answered everything honestly and without guile. Uh, and well, and was vilified incredibly in all of the nations, newspapers, and even internationally. The London newspapers all had these frumpy little things of him, and, you know, 25 wives, and I mean, it was just vicious. And, and his response was to just respond to everything he could. Uh, in his last two years, his health failed, and he had a, a, a number of very uh, painful things happening. One, he always assumed that uh, his, his oldest son, uh, Hiram M. Smith, would take over one day as, as president of the church. And Hiram would die uh, in 19, January of 1916. Was it 16 or 18? Wasn't it during the flu? 16. Hiram's going to die earlier. Okay. Uh, 
and that broke his health. Might be 18, now that you mentioned it. Prior to that, 1916, his health had been failing, and he gave what I posted before, what I think is the all-time great general conference talk called In the Presence of the Divine, that you can still find in the Google. I think, in fact, I think it's actually, I I still have it on the website. Uh, About saying, and and it's all a discussion about those on the other side of the day, and it's it's just incredibly powerful. Uh, On top of that, so he loses that, at the same time, World War One is just is almost grinding to a halt, and millions. It's the first major war that we have sent. That the church sent a lot of brethren off to. They were dying in, in Flanders fields. On top of that, in 1918, the flu epidemic is is wiping out large parts of the population. Uh, in fact, if you'll notice this this revelation is actually read by his uh, son in General Conference on October 3rd. He is too sick to actually read it himself in General Conference. Uh, It will be presented by his son to an almost empty tabernacle because of the flu epidemic that's underway. At the end of October, it will be voted on by the 12 as Revelation, and Joseph F. will be dead two weeks later. So this is six weeks before. This is kind of his crowning uh, revelation of his life. On the 3rd of October in the year 1918, I sat in my room pondering over the scriptures. Then he's going to, in verse 2, Reflecting on the atoning sacrifice. Uh, Verse 28, and I wondered, and as I wondered, okay, can you hear the words he's using? Okay, if you go back here, I sat in my room pondering on the scriptures. Does that give you a hint as to how we're supposed to study? The scriptures. Mm-hmm. No, speed reading. no speed reading. There are those times, and I get it, where you're trying to read the Book of Mormon in a month. And you're trying to read five chapters a night, and I think sometimes there's a place for that, and a time for that. However, to really get the full import of what's in the scriptures, listen to the words he's using. I sat pondering... And reflecting. Sometimes you just put the book down and think about what was said. That's why I like this quote from Neil Maxwell. Pondering for most of us is not something we do easily. Especially if we have ADD. It is much more than drifting or daydreaming. For it focuses and stirs us, not lulls us. We must set aside time, circumstances, and attitude in order to achieve it. In Alma's words, we must give place. The length of time involved in pondering is not as important as the intensity given to it. Reflection cannot be achieved in the midst of distraction. There's a key to understanding the Scriptures. Like I've said, I wish I I could have all of you study the Scriptures the way that I do. 
out of necessity, I get a chapter and I study the same chapter all week long. I, I must read through a section a hundred times. Just reading and reading and reading, trying to get ready because I always feel like I'm missing something. So I'm going through kind of the Doctrine and Covenants one section at a time, one week at a time. And sometimes it's late in the week before something finally comes, but after I've read it a times. Pondering, wondering, reflecting. This is how this is how this revelation comes. And he's going to go through a number of things. Reflecting on the great. He opens the scriptures. And so here is, here is the key, I think, to understanding Scripture. As I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened. We call these the aha moments. Where you're reading in the Scriptures and you get an aha. Something jumps out at you. You should have these in the temple. You should have ahas. Ah. You know, because you're pondering about it. You're thinking about it. Without delving too far into sacred things, Cindy and I almost got ourselves in trouble in the temple the other day. We were pondering over ahas, and we were the witness temple, and we were doing things at the wrong time, when we weren't supposed to be doing them because we weren't paying attention because we were busy pondering. The officiators looked at us like, <laughs> All right. As I pondered over these things which are written, the eyes of my understanding were opened. Isn't that how the scripture should work? That if you're just pondering and we're thinking, it'll open up to us. We'll get it. We get a hops. Okay? In his case, listen to what he says. He's looking at the celestial kingdom. There he's, uh, he's looking. He says, I, "The spirit of the Lord rested on me, and I saw the host of the dead, both small and great, and they were gathered together in one place in an innumerable company of the spirits of the just, who had been faithful in the testimony of Jesus while they lived in mortality, who'd offered sacrifice." 14, had departed the mortal life, firm in the hope. 15, I beheld they were filled with joy and gladness and rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance was at hand. Can you picture that? You have all of these great spirits. Oh, there's, there's Abraham, and there's Isaiah, and, you know, and there's Nephi, and they're, and they're buzzing. They're in this large group. It's like, it's happened. He's been, he's been crucified. He's, it's, it's, it's about to happen. And they're just kind of anticipating. I've always had that experience when as a boy, uh, we would, uh, growing up in Utah, uh, we would frequently go down to the tabernacle for general conference. And it was always kind of fun. And I would always kind of sit up on the upper balcony of the tabernacle near the front on the side where I could look down and it's like, oh, here's, here's all these apostles coming in and all that. But the buzz would be there. When's the prophet going to show up? And then, and there's a buzz, there's a buzz, and then you sign. And the prophet walks in. And not a noise in the room. That's the buzz I keep thinking about. It's like, he's coming, it's happened, it's going to occur. 
Think about all of these uh, who had been departed the mortal life, firm in the hope. I beheld they were filled with joy and gladness and were rejoicing together because the day of their deliverance is, hand, is at hand and they were assembled waiting the advent of the Son of God into the spirit world to declare their redemption from the bands of death. Eighteen. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, rejoicing in the hour that their deliverance from the chains of death, the Son of God appeared declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. Think about that for a second. These are the faithful. These have sacrificed. These have waited with a hope in the spirit world that He would come. And they were captive. And they were in bondage. And they knew they were in bondage. How many of the faithful even today are we captive and in bondage but faithful? There are those that are in bondage because of sin. There are also those that are in bondage who are faithful. Let me give you an example of that. You knew I had to do something by C.S. Lewis eventually, right? Okay. How strange that we cannot love time. It spoils our loveliest moments. Nothing quite comes up to the expectations because of it. We are alone. Animals, as far as we can see, are unaware of time and they're untroubled. Time is their natural environment. Why do we sense that it's not ours? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We are always amazed at it, how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone. Think about how many times, I just don't have enough time. We're, we're bound by time. We are in bondage to time. I just, I need more than 24 hours in a day to get everything done. I just don't have enough time. You have enough time? No, I ran out of time. Mom, I got to see, I ran out of time. I didn't have enough time to finish my project. 18 months goes really fast. No, slow it down. Where, we cry, has the time gone? We aren't adapted to it. Not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof, at least a powerful suggestion, that eternity exists and is our home. One of the bindings that we have is time. And when, next time that you think about the fact that you were harried by time, you don't have enough time, 
You wish you had more time. You wish you could go back and relive things. It's a reminder that you are built for eternity. You're not built for restriction. You're not built for limits. And the fact that it bothers us is a reminder that we are eternal beings. Does that make sense? That's right. Because they're eternal beings too. That's right. Exactly right. <laughs> Okay. Okay. While this vast multitude waited and conversed, the Son of God appeared declaring liberty to the captives who had been faithful. There He preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of resurrection and redemption. And He had to, and He was going to. And who was He preaching to? The choir. But to the wicked, he did not go. Unto the ungodly and unrepentant who had defiled themselves in the flesh, his voice was not raised. Neither did the rebellious who rejected the testimonies, uh, nor look upon his face. Where these were, darkness reigned, but among the righteous there was peace. And the saints rejoiced in their redemption and bowed the knee and acknowledged the Son of God as their Redeemer from death and the chains of hell. Their the countenance is shown and radiance from from the presence of the Lord rested upon them and they sang praises unto His holy name. Then he's going to use the same word that Joseph Smith did. I marvel. And remember that marvel for him, as it should be for us, is that when we understand, the more we understand God, the more we should marvel. That's why we, we said, and, and, and Laura attribute uh, C.S. Lewis's quote. Every idea we have of God, He must, in mercy, shatter and replace it ultimately with the, with the truth. He has to shatter, shatter our limitations of Him, our, our uh, misunderstanding of how merciful He really is. He has to shatter those and replace it with the truth. And when we finally see it, we marvel. We're overwhelmed by it. We're amazed by it. He is more wonderful than we have any idea. Even when we show up as dragging saints. I marveled. For I understood the Savior spent three years in his ministry, and here's this guileless man. And, and, and the, there's two things here, and both both I think are true. And it's certainly true for this, this wonderful man. He says. I marveled, for I understood the Savior spent three years in His ministry among the Jews and those of the house of Israel, endeavoring to teach them the everlasting gospel and call them to repentance. And notwithstanding His mighty works, miracles, and proclamation of truth, in great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to His voice. What's He saying? I can't believe they didn't get it. This is Jesus and He's doing marvelous works and I can't believe they didn't believe Him. I would have. I would have believed Him. And He would have. But He's marveling about two things. One, the fact that the Jews didn't get it. Number two, but His, but his ministry among those who were dead, verse 27, was limited to the brief time intervening 
between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I wondered about where Paul's or Peter's talking about that he went and taught them. So the other thing that Joseph F. is wondering is what? How did he do it all in three days? How did he do that? Wow, I, I believe that he did it. And then the Revelation is going to go on to talk about how it is that the Savior marshaled his forces, taught them, prepared them, and sent them forth. Let me finish, let me finish with this just as a reminder uh, with Mother's Day coming up, sisters. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to, not only is he going to then say, this was amazing and he got to watch this great work underway. And then he's going to say, so who is this great missionary force that went out to preach the gospel powerfully? And he's going to give you, among the mighty ones, there was Adam, the Ancient of Days, Abel, Noah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elias, Malachi. He is going on and on. Uh, hold on uh, Elijah uh, 49 the prophets who dwelled among the Nephites it's like this is who's who anybody who's pro- taught the Savior prominently in scriptures or as prophets they're part of this massive missionary force going out there it's just, this is so awesome okay but he includes one other group, doesn't he? Verse 39. And Mother Eve. Glorious Mother Eve with, with many of her faithful daughters who had lived through the ages and worshipped the true and living God. This great force was filled with these great prophets and these magnificent who went forth to preach and bring light to those in darkness. I think it's it's interesting enough that he would he would point out exactly that Mother Eve and her daughters had a specific set of responsibilities sisters, to go out and carry out this work. This God is more merciful and more loving than any idea. These two revelations were intended, I think, to stretch our understanding of who He is and the, and the way that He sees those on both sides of the veil to make sure on both sides the Gospel is preached in power and that second chances are given over and over and over if there's a possibility that someone will accept whether in this life or the next. Yes. Because when you look at the land of the Lambs, or you look at those that have, have gone through the temple and maybe have walked away, 
And, and you look at that, and, and what he's saying to us is the last chapter has not yet been written. That when, when we don't know the circumstances, the understanding, the knowledge, the misperceptions. And, and like uh, Boyd K. Packer said, do not underestimate when we take these people and we put them in a place of greater love, with greater light, and greater understanding. Don't assume that we know the fate of, of any. Yeah. Right, but he's going to extend it, and he's going to open up, and that's why that's why I never look at those. As, and, and Laman and Lemuel, I think, is a really good example. We could say these guys are really evil. I'm not willing to necessarily say uh, that. That's why, in some way, I, and I've mentioned the story before. It, it's it's still incomprehensible to me uh, that I heard uh, Truman Madsen quote Hubie Brown who believed that one day David would be exalted. And I caught Truman Madsen once in the library at BYU, and I said, did, did, did President Brown really say that? And he says, absolutely. He believed that to his dying death. That somehow, in some way, the Lord loved David so much that somehow he would receive his exaltation. Which goes against everything else I've ever read. But the fact that someone that I hold on as high a pedestal as I do, Hubie Brown, would even entertain that thought, was that moment where I said, it's not my place to judge anyone because I don't know. And I'm not going to live with this great God. Yeah. 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 And that that love, and that that love may may finally override whatever earthly misunderstandings they had that led to the decisions they made. That's why I have to all the time. And that's why we're telling you, you are part of our children that it will work. That that they will reach out. That makes sense to you. Yeah, and it fits with this God that I understand. Watching down here suffer. Yes. Yes.
read up on proclamation of family. Thank you. Thank you. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody else could be there? Was it mostly, was it mostly a musical presentation? About 80% of it was present packer for about 20 minutes.